0: Best I can see. <laughs> uh, if you're visiting here today, you're wondering what that's all about. <clears throat> then again, some of you are visiting here today because of that. <laughs> I don't want to go check this church out. Don't even have to wear clothes when they come. <clears throat> uh, well, I, we are we are in a little series that I just believe is the Lord's directing of us to. Very critical issues of what we understand about how we are living this life. We get up in the morning and we make decisions. Every day we make decisions. We're going to do this and we're not going to do that. We want to do this. We don't want to do that. We're going to do this even though we don't want to do it. I mean, just all day long that kind of stuff is going on. This this is morally acceptable to me. This is not. This is valuable. This is not. This is the way I use my money and my time. This would be wrong to use it this way. We we are trafficking in those issues every day of our lives. And, And last week, we kind of concluded. I just want to revisit a thought here with you. Last week, we concluded the message really highlighting how God is relating to us in His grace. And that should have stirred up some questions for us some questions about what motivates us to make the decisions that we're going to make, especially if we were to pull away some of the restraining elements that we said last week. A lot of the times these are external restraining elements. So if we were to minimize them, would all of us just say, great, great. Great, the church doesn't care anymore if you do this or you do that. I don't have to answer to my covenant group leader. You know, that, that whole context of culture that's there. I'm not going to be frowned upon if I do this. right? If we strip that stuff away, would all of a sudden you just start living your life differently? If the external pressures were minimized. Well, sometimes there's external pressures in how we, we believe God is relating to us. That theology strips those things away. Right, last week we talked about Hebrews chapter 8. Because God here is reminding in Hebrews 8 about the covenant that's coming in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The prophecy of a day when God says he's going to remove the heart of stone. He's going to give a heart of flesh and he's going to write his laws on our hearts. And he's going to put his spirit on the inside of us and he says he's going to cause us to walk in his ways. It's an incredible day. And when he references that in the New Testament, he talks about it and he, he says things like in verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God's not going to remember our sins anymore. Right? And then Hebrews 10 goes even further. It gives us this whole picture of Jesus was the sacrifice. And when his blood was shed, he took away sins. So he took sins out of the equation. So sin for the believer. Now, okay, listen, if you're not sure about your relationship with Christ, I'm not talking about you. you in trouble. And I hope by the end of the message here, you, you realize you're in trouble. But by God's mercy towards those who have trusted Him, God has removed this barrier that sin has created. He talks about sacrifices in verse 18. He says, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin." It doesn't say there's, there's not an offering now unless another sin occurs and, and then we're going to need to kick the offering back over again. But hey, up until this moment, all the sins, they're, they're taken care of. They're cool. But now if you sin again, we're going to have to do another offering thing. No, no. Past sins were dealt with by one offering and all future sins are being dealt with by one offering. As a matter of fact, right before that verse, it says that, that we have been made perfect before God. All those who are being sanctified. So God's still at work in us, affecting us. But our status before God is we are accepted as though we are perfect. Now, if if I were to throw all that out there, Jesus is never going to come be sacrificed again. Your sins are no longer an issue of God's going to reward you according to your sins. God is dealing with you now in a new covenant that is based completely in His grace, that is based on the person and work of Christ, not on you, not on your works. Not on what you've done to this point. Or on what you will do in the future. That's where it gets weird, doesn't it? I'm almost cool with the idea that okay, God's He's released me from everything in the past. So all those faults and all those sins in Christ, they're forgiven. God's not responding to me based on those. And he's not going to respond to me based on the ones I do tomorrow either. Now I get a little weird because it's like I haven't done those yet. And what if I do the wrong thing? You mean... I don't need to be worried that... See, don't, don't some of us just want to worry? Don't we just want God with a big fly swatter in his hand? Some of us want that. It's like it's what we're after. And we're definitely after it for some other people. <laughs> right? All right, here's the question. If there's, not, if there's not severe enough consequence when we sin, then what's to keep us from running after sin? I know when I told everybody you can come, to, you come next week dressed however you want. I know there were some people in the church going, Whoa! Oh, what are you doing, man? I'm not coming next week. Keith, you can't tell people that kind of thing. Well, what are you afraid of? Because if you don't hem them in, if you don't pressure them from the outside, they won't do the right thing. Wow. Really? That's all we got going for us. Pressure from the outside. That's a very low view of Christianity. But what about this whole issue of the grace of God when it comes on the scene that minimizes your activity and maximizes God's? Right? Listen to this thought from John Stott. He says if we are proclaiming Paul's gospel with its emphasis on the freeness of grace, right? Grace is not. Bound in us, grace doesn't look to us and then decide whether or not it will be motivated by us to do something. That's what freeness means. And the impossibility of self-salvation, we are sure to provoke the charge of antinomianism, right? All the law is gone, do whatever. If we do not arouse this criticism, the likelihood is that we are not preaching Paul's gospel. Right, now I just want to ask you a question because I, I'm going to get back to this in a moment because we have a couple of different sets of Christians in this room, and you are one of them, whether you realize it or not. My question to you is, when you preach the gospel, and I don't mean, you know, Jesus Christ was a historic figure, he came and died, and when you preach the gospel of relationship with God, does anybody ever accuse you of teaching license? No, not me, brother. Not me. Well, then you ought to be very concerned. Because even the Apostle Paul was accused of that. So if you've never been accused of that because you would never live a life like that or encourage anybody, if you've never done that, then you ought to be very concerned about what it is that you're preaching to people. Look look in Romans chapter 5 with me. Romans, right at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6, is going to introduce us to this question. I've got to back up and give us a little context here first. Really, the whole book is leading up to this moment, but but particularly starting in chapter 3. I'm going to race through a few verses here. Chapter 3 begins to lay the groundwork, or it's already begun, the groundwork for the doctrine of justification. Justification is that thing that God does where he says, I no longer find you guilty. I no longer find you guilty. By the work of my son and forgiveness being given to you, I move you out of the status of owing me to now you are debt-free. I see you as justified, as completely acceptable, with no fault that would separate you from me. You are justified. And so this doctrine is being prepared and explained to us. And God's going to do that for what reason? Now think with me, because this is where this whole setup comes from. Why would God do that? Why would God do it for you? Is it because you finally started cleaning your act up? You know, you lived 10, 15 years of being a real knucklehead, and then all of a sudden you started to put it together. You know, you started your Bible reading a little better. You cut some of those bad deals that you were doing. You started telling the truth more, became a better husband. And then God decided, okay, finally, finally I can work with you. Finally, and then God's going to justify you now. Does anybody believe that's how justification comes? Because if you, if you do, you've not per- carefully read these passages. Romans 3, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Right? What if people don't live up to their side of the deal in relating to God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Then how can God judge the world? But if through my life God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Right? In other words, if God's going to have mercy on whoever He's going to have mercy, regardless... Of them, well, then, why am I, why am I still being regarded as a sinner here? And, and and why not, if that's the way it works, why not do evil that God, that good may come from it? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And see, Paul was being accused of this very thing. Paul, you're teaching people that God's gonna be faithful to people even when they're faithless. God's going to be God. God's going to honor his covenant. God's going to stay in relationship. God's going to bestow grace. God's going to bring kindness. Even when they're faithless, even when they screw up, well then, why not just screw up all the more? It seems to be screwing up is what brings the grace of God. Might as well just keep doing it. Right? That's the question. And Paul was being slandered as that's what he was teaching. He was telling people, go screw up all you want. Last week, just for clarification's sake, I told you because I got jumped on the way in this morning. I told you that if you wanted to come to church naked, that was your call. I didn't tell you to come to church naked, okay? So I'm already being slandered like the Apostle Paul. Telling people to abuse the way in which you live. But I am thrusting you into the reality of, what is it that you really want? What do you want? What is inside your heart that you really do want? See, Paul was being slandered here. He was being told, Paul, you're teaching people to live however they want. Just do whatever. It doesn't matter what you do. Because God's going to be faithful. God's going to be God. No matter what you do. Well, look at justification here. He begins to explain. He says, listen, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands. No one's heart is toward God. So if there ever is going to be a day when you're going to take a snapshot of a bunch of people who don't want God and then the next snapshot you take, people want God, something happened right there. And it didn't happen from these people. They don't want God. They don't want to do the right thing. So if there ever is going to be a change here, it's going to have to be something God does. And it will have to be a gift because the people who don't want God will never earn it. That's what he explains. Look in verse 20, chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. Right? The more you try and live right, the more you're reminded that I fall short. Right? When you're not trying to do anything right, you don't get reminded that. It's not until you decide, okay, I'm going on a diet. Now, aren't you aware of everything wrong you're eating? When you weren't on the diet? You're not violating anything. You're not on a diet. But when you're on a diet, all of a sudden, it's like sin is stirred up in you. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, now that's how you get righteousness. We believe and righteousness is a gift from God. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, we're all disqualified, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right, now turn over to Romans chapter five. Now when did when did this idea of God giving a gift take place? Again, was it after we had begun to reform ourselves? No. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Notice, much more now. If our situation, if this is when I came to Christ, and this is my life before Christ, if my situation over here was my back is toward God, I am busy with sin, I am self-oriented, I'm seeking to get the whole universe orbiting around me. God is not the center of things, even though I acknowledge that he may exist. And then in that moment, I am an enemy of God. I am a sinner of God. And then God comes to me in his kindness and grace and he brings me into salvation. And then I get on this side. This is like joining a bad fraternity, right? I get on this side. Now all the rules change. Now... I am oriented towards God. Now my attention is toward Him, but there are moments when I falter and wander and don't stay on course. And And now, as Christians, though, it's almost as though now we're going to have God. Now God's going to get me. Now He's going to get me. You can't do that, and and we want to impose things on one another as though God, who would be so kind to us over here, won't be that way towards us now. Well, wait a minute. If it, you, You're saying, that well, what, does it doesn't matter what I do over here? Or was it mattering what you were doing over there? Let me just see if I can get that straight first. Did it matter what you were doing over here? When God came to you and saved you, you were an enemy. You were a sinner. You were a rebel. Some of us worse than others, but in the eyes of God, none deserving. None deserved God to come to them. So i get over on this side. Does it matter what you do now? Well, in the sense of being justified, no. Because you receive justification as a gift. No one earns it. You didn't earn it over there, and you're not going to earn it over here either. So being right with God, living in the grace of God, it's not about what you do. It's about what God does. Whoa, whoa, time out. Keith, you can't tell people stuff like that because you know what they're going to do with that, don't you? They're going to decide, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. I'm leaving here today and I can't wait. (laughs) Man, I've got some things that I'm going to be getting to today. He just told me it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all about what God's going to do. If I'm faithless, he's going to remain faithful. Isn't that what it's saying? That's exactly what Paul is saying because in Romans 6, you get this response. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in the sin that grace may abound? Stop. Don't read the rest. <laughs> right, now that's the question that the teaching of justification stirs up. If that's how God justifies us, then what's to keep me from sinning? And that's the question we have before us today. And I'm curious as we set out to answer this. How have you been answering that? When somebody that you're relating to decides they'd like to just go ahead and pursue sinning. What are you doing there to help them with that? What, what What are you framing around them? What are you telling them to keep them from doing that? Now listen, it matters to me. How someone lives. It matters to me their choices. Choices have consequences. And we'll deal with that in a moment. But there is something here that's missing. Very concerning that it's missing. Two approaches I just want to highlight. And then I'm going to talk about two sets of people in the church. And hopefully it will help us to have ears to hear this no matter where we are. There are two approaches to living the Christian life. One I would call the fence building Christian The fence-building Christian lives at the edge of the behavioral universe, right? This is the ideal Christian world right here, and he is way on the edges of it, and somewhere he has defined an edge. Now, defining an edge is really a challenging thing to do, right? I mean, this is, I'm right on the edge of acceptable behavior as a Christian, okay? You know, can you realize how difficult that is to define? You know, does it mean you've done it one too many times, 10 too many times I mean it depends on how you see the grace of God and the mercy of God right is that form of behavior well it's not quite yet sinful but see the fence building Christian he builds up a wall of China around the edges of his life and he cannot go beyond that wall and he does it in various categories right and and again I'm trying to be real with you guys Um, I mean you live real lives so if I get into a kind of a a category just it is where you live Right. If you're, if you're in the dating world, right, this is, this is where a fence building Christian lives in the dating world. A fence building Christian knows that if I'm not married as a Christian, I'm not supposed to have sex outside of marriage. So they build the Great Wall of China right at the act of sex. And then they spend their lives seeing how close to the fence they can get without going over but I'm still on this side. You know, I haven't... right. The center of the Christian universe with God is way over here and technically they're still in bounds. Well, maybe. I don't know. Depends on where you build your fence, right? But when you go to build your fences, you build them. You decide where they go or you go to a church that decides where they go. And the church builds them for you. And then they pressure you however they do it. We do that. Right? Sometimes with good intentions, I'm sure we're doing that. But the reality is, I want to know what's governing your life. See, the sad tragedy of this, this looks like that, you know, you go into the, the corral, the horse that's, that's worn a trail around the edge of the corral. Right? I mean, there's, just, there's no grass growing. He just walks the edge. He walks the perimeter. He lives on the edge. I am so close to sin. I'm living my whole life for the edge of the Christian universe. Now, the problem with this is God is at the center of the Christian universe. And you are as far away from him as you can possibly get. And that is terribly tragic. But I'm still a Christian. See, there's another kind of Christian. And and his activity in life is, is more like a Christian on an invisible heart leash. There's no great walls of China. But there's something in his heart toward the center that defines how far he will travel. His behavior gets determined by what he sees at the center. See, when Paul described becoming new creations in Christ... Just before those verses in Second Corinthians. He says, you know, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. That we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. There's an affection there. There's a delight in God there. That he is saying, that's what controls me. Now, you can't see it because I didn't put some big... Ten foot wall up and say, no, I can't go across that. My church tells me that or I just believe that. The love of Christ controls me. I can consider all kinds of other things now. Long before I ever get to an act of sex, I can consider something about that person, about the glory. I can consider many other things now because it's the love of Christ in me that informs my life and controls And restrains my life as well. So remember last week we talked about being motivated toward God. Remember that that passage in Psalm 24. You know, one thing. One thing have I desired. That will I seek after. Okay, here's the one thing. It's God himself. Now, the one whose heart has been won and affected by God. What direction is he facing in? He's not standing at the edge saying, everybody else gets to do this. Why don't I get to do this? Because that one thing would be to his back then. One thing will I seek after. This is the posture of the person whose heart is toward God, is this way. He doesn't live at the edge of the Christian universe, shopping for what everybody else gets to do and trying to figure out why it is that that's wrong and why do people tell you that that's wrong and arguing for that? Because he wants one thing. I'm obsessed with one thing. I don't have time for that. I'm obsessed with one thing. I want I want this. That's a very different world to live in. The person who's living on the fence, I guarantee you, you're not enjoying this thing. Look at this, this interesting passage in Psalm 32. Keep your finger there in Romans. I think we come back to it here. Psalm 32 It's a very interesting picture. In verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. See, that horse, that mule, it doesn't want to do what you're doing, it doesn't want to plow the field. It doesn't want to pull the wagon and turn left. You have to force it to do that from the outside because its heart doesn't really care about what you want. So you stick a bit in its mouth and that steel bit pulls on the edges of the horse's mouth. And so from the outside, the horse gets directed. His heart is unaffected. He may be doing things But he doesn't want to do them. How many of us are are living some bit and bridle Christianity? Like we're doing things, and listen, in the in the church, we start doing these things because it'll be frowned on. Somebody will ask me. People think that's wrong. Right? I mean, it's not what I want. I'm not doing what I want. I'm afraid you're gonna ask me about my views on dating. Whether I should go to parades or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: What's in your heart? What do you want? Well, that's not the issue, is it, for a bitten, bridal Christian? I'm Listen, I mean, I, I pay attention to the body of Christ as best I know how. I'm describing way too many churches right now. Way too many churches. I'm describing way too many Christians. That somehow, this is what we've turned Christianity into bunch of rules being imposed, constraints and mechanisms to control what we're doing. Charles Spurgeon said, The horse does not understand his driver's wishes, except as he intimates them through the bit and bridle. When he he is to turn, when he is to quicken his pace, and when he is to stand still must be told him through the rein. For apart from the bit in his mouth, he has no understanding of the man's mind. That thought which works in the mind of his driver is not working in the mule's mind, and therefore he has to feel a pull At his mouth to make him know his master's desire. By contrast, Spurgeon says, Be sensitive to the Spirit of God. So dwell in God that he shall dwell in you. And his indwelling shall cause you to feel at once what it is that he would have you to do. See, that internal working of the Spirit of God. See, I mean, how does the will of God sit in your life? When when God's will gets revealed about that issue, about whether you can marry that person or own that thing or drink that, when that comes to you, how do you how do you react to that? Is is it an imposition? Is it an external imposition and restriction on your life? Or does it spring forth as a delight and a joy? I mean, do, do you stand at the edge of your life going, "Why don't I get to?" I mean, sad. I mean that's, a, that's a screamingly sad testimony of Christianity. Right? It's like being in a prison. You know, like prisoners who stand at the razor wire gazing out, wishing they could just do that. This is not prison. It's a joy, isn't it? Or maybe not. But if it's not, we've got something to fix. Now, let me, I'm, I'm going to introduce all of us to a... Hopefully, an exercise that keeps us from releasing ourselves from this. This is what I call equaling the playing ground. You know, in the Christian universe, there are two primary parties. If this was a parliament meeting, you know how, have you ever seen a parliament meeting? It's it's, it's a little bit different than how we do in Congress. You know, we have, we have Republicans and we have Democrats. You know, if you're a Republican, your brain thinks a certain way. And if you're a Democrat, your brain thinks a certain way. So as soon as a guy stands up and says a certain thing, there's this impulse from within you that goes, yeah, well, in Parliament does it much better. You ever watch a British Parliament? They're, they're a little more animated. This is as a matter of fact, this is the only time English people come to life. The rest of the time... <laughs> sorry, Peter, but they're sort of propped-up corpses everywhere else in their existence. But in Parliament, for some reason... Man, these are fighting words, you know. It's like so one of them says something, one side, oh, you're yelling at each other. Well, that's sort of what church is like, and there are two parties here today, and they fall into many possible categories. We could call them, you know, the grace versus uh, the law. Uh, we could come up with a number of titles. I've just chosen two that kind of relate to what we said last week: the pleasure pursuer and the religious defender. There is in our meeting this morning two parties. You are probably part of one of them. The pleasure pursuer, the pleasure pursuer sits through meetings, sifting through messages with a fine tooth comb, trying to find any rules that are being given out. The pleasure pursuer who believes that what the Bible teaches is a certain way and therefore if you ever speak with the voice of an imperative statement. You must do blah blah blah. It's like your ears go, whoa, 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 it's like I heard that, you just don't put that on me. Right, that's a good terminology that the pleasure pursuer uses to defend his position. Don't put that on me. Right? Pleasure pursuers have ears to hear certain things, but not ears to hear other things. And if I preach this morning and I highlight the grace of God when we talk about justification and it's not based in you, it's in the faithfulness of God. If you were faithless, God would remain faithful. Amen. I'm hearing that, buddy. I'm all over it. You just release me from any responsibility. I heard it. Crystal clear. As a matter of fact, I'm starting my email to you now. You'll be getting it before you get in the office this week. And Listen. This will be a dynamic of communication I just want to instill in all of us here so we can have a good relationship for years to come. <laughs> if I or one of the other pastors happens to preach on a subject that you have ears to hear, I know what that feels like when you hear it. It feels like, finally, finally, these guys are getting something. Finally, they figure figured something out. That's the best message you ever preached. Okay, listen, when you say that to me, it is telling me more about you than it is about me. (laughs) It's telling me what you have the capacity to understand and receive. Can I just screw up all your theology here for a second? (laughs) For the pleasure for pursuer. Ezekiel 36, right? That's where we started this series. That's a key passage we want to keep in mind. That there's a day that God says, you know, not because of you, but because of my own grace. I'm going to vindicate my righteous name. And I'm going to take out of you this heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And it's going to have writing on it that I'm going to put there. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And this is where it gets really difficult for the pleasure pursuer. Because we're loving all that, right? Loving that God's going to do that in spite of anything about you. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my rules. Uh, <laughs> right? God just said statutes and rules. And then he also said you would be careful to observe them. Wait, I, I do not think I need to do any of that. I mean, I, I'm liking this right on my heart, free spirit. You know, I'm liking all that. But when the grace of God shows up in your life, isn't it interesting that you become careful to observe rules? That's a little different than what we have ears to hear sometimes. I just want to be released. Don't put any obligation on me. Don't give me any responsibility. See, that just makes me feel condemned. Ah, ah. You're condemned by that? You need to go back and read Romans 3 through Romans 5 until you throw up. See, responsibility is all over the Bible. If it makes you feel condemned, it's because you've jumped into the Christian life with a poor understanding of justification. See, if you have a good understanding of justification, you can hear imperatives. And I'll probably conclude this series talking a little bit about imperatives. But right now, we're in the land of God's gracious indicatives. We have the other party here today, the religious defender. The religious defender has ears to hear a whole different set of ideas. He wants to hear about holiness, reverence, sobriety, respect for God, walking in obedience, being obedient to God. You know what? All those things are biblical. But, you know, when I stand in the pulpit sometimes and preach a message that bludgeons people, and you should get bludgeoned sometimes. I don't apologize for that. So you get beat up by this message and you're like, I'm not not doing that and I'm not doing this. There's some in the audience who are like, amen, I'm starting my email now. Finally, this is the best message you ever preached, man. What's going on there? I'm the same guy, right? My theology doesn't go, you know, I don't believe that anymore. I just believe in indicative statements today. And then I come in two weeks later, you know, out of the indicative statements. I'm only in the imperatives. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. You must, you must, you must. And then three weeks later, oh, I have a new revelation. Doesn't matter what you do. Do this now. I'm a moron, but I'm not that much of a moron. But when we only hear those one things, listen, it's saying something about us. Now, sadly, the person who is the religious defender probably came out of their skin last week with the idea that you just told people, do whatever they want. What? Come to church naked? What? You can't can't tell people stuff like that. And the, the religious defender, this is the thing about being a religious defender. The religious defender chooses from a list of categories which ones he will defend. He doesn't defend them all because he violates a lot of them himself. He only defends some of them. They tend to be things like movies. You can't go to that kind of a movie. And clothing. I can't believe she's wearing that. And drinking and smoking. we got a little list. You can't get on the wrong side of that list. There, because if you do, the religious defender wants to know, hey, is one of the pastors addressing this person? Did you see? Yeah, there, are uh-huh, uh-huh, But you know what doesn't make the list? Here's some things that don't make the list. Overeating doesn't make the list for some of these guys. Uncharitable judgments <laughs> doesn't make the list. Poor male leadership usually doesn't make the list. Unsubmitted wives typically doesn't make the list sometimes. Lack of serving, undisciplined children, your house is a mess, nobody can walk in it, that doesn't make the list. Too much polyester, that doesn't make the list. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> Listen, in, in whatever category we find ourselves in, every one of us is an abuser of the grace of God. Everybody is a licensee. You just got to find your category. Right? The woman who walks in with her hair in a bun because she believes a certain thing about righteousness based on where her hair is located on her head, wearing clothing that is to hear... But, on the way through the front door, the church is ordering her husband around her house is completely disorderly, but when she 's here she 's a certain way That woman has as much license issues as the person who's got a different list of license issues going on right you got some people who you wonder you were you were you were where friday night you went you went there right you know so she, she's checking this guy out, can't believe where he went the other night. But she happens to be a person who never evangelizes, doesn't share the gospel, doesn't pursue that kind of engagement with the gospel ever. Now this guy over here who happened to be in the wrong place Friday night reaches out to this person and that person and that person. Okay, now, both of them are licensees, aren't they? One says the grace of God lets me go wherever I want. The other one says the grace of God lets me not obey him in evangelism. I don't, ever, I don't ever strive to make disciples. Doesn't the Bible tell you to do that? You see, you're just as guilty when you don't do what the Bible calls you to do as when you do something that it tells you not to do. Now, the religious defender tends to camp out and you don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and I've noticed you've been doing it. Well, you know, you could return fire on that person and it will do this and do this and do this and I notice you don't. And that would be a reality. See, because we're all licensees in certain categories. So so this is true, right? All of us are in this category together. right? If we just shuffle the deck and this week, it's not about clothing and movies. It's about whether or not you have been serving the body of Christ. How many licensees will we have here this morning? It's about whether you are found out in the community serving in order to make the gospel known to a generation that's dying apart from Christ. Oh, I don't do that. You see, if I just move the category, we're all licensees somewhere along this line. We're all abusing the grace of God. Let's go back to our question. How does the Bible address the issue of Christians' ongoing participation in sin? Go back to Romans chapter 6. Now listen to how Paul answers this. Here's the question. Sounds like this is an abusive thing you're about to set up, Paul. Why are you doing that? What shall we say then, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep on sinning, Christians? By no means. Now stop. Before we get into what he does say, let me just highlight what he's not about to say. What he's not about to say He's not about to say, if you keep on sinning, you're going straight to hell. As a matter of fact, what if you go off and commit that sin and Jesus returns five minutes after that? You're going to hell. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I guarantee there's some here this morning who believe that. And there's no way you can believe that after what we just described, Romans chapter 3 through 5. There's no way you can believe that. God treated you better when you were his enemy than when you were his child who screwed up and he happened to return on a bad day? What? Where do we get these ideas from? But they control people. Because if I make you afraid of going to hell, I can get you to stop that. No, maybe not. Well, you can lose your salvation. See, losing my salvation implies that I won it at some point. That I did something to win it from God. And so therefore, if I did something to win it from God, then certainly I can do something to lose it now. If I did something to qualify for it, well then certainly I can do something to disqualify myself from it. But if I understand the grace of God, if I understand Ezekiel 36 is referring to a bunch of people who don't deserve God to come in their life with grace... They were not qualified 850 years of their sin. And God comes and says, not for your sake. I do this. I do this for mine. I'm going to come and save you. Well, I, I, I wasn't qualified from the start. I was disqualified then. And if you remove the gift of God's mercy and grace and his righteousness being given to me, I'm still not qualified on my best day. I'm still not qualified. Well, well, if you keep doing that, there's going to be severe consequences in your life. Right? Why am I telling people this? Because I'm trying to get you to change your behavior. I'm trying to get you to stop. Stop doing what you're going to do. And if you keep doing that, you're going to go blind or whatever. Right? Now, let me just say this. Are there consequences to our choices? Yes. Yes. Yes, everybody hear that? There are consequences to our choices. But by the very nature of grace, grace is always having to violate and overcome consequences to ever show up in our life, ever. The mere fact that grace is here is a declaration that you didn't get what you deserved. So the consequences have been short-circuited by the grace of God. So I can tell you, if you keep making that decision, it's possible there could be consequences in your life. But I also, if I'm honest to the Bible, could say God could choose to look on your situation with mercy and let there be no consequences from that. Oh, there you go, Keith. If you tell people that, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. I mean, if they don't have some reason to stop it, man, you've got to make them afraid. It's going to get bad, man. Right, I'm, just, I'm, I'm with the Apostle Paul. I don't know who you're with. I'm with the Apostle Paul here. Look what he says. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, (laughs) who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. To sin. Look in verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is almost doing a double take when a Christian says, I've been saved, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to continue in sin. Paul wants to do a double take on that. He wants to go what? I could have swore you just said that you were saved and you were going to continue in sin. Did that, is that what you just said? Because it's like, it doesn't equate in my mind. It doesn't make any sense. See, Paul's befuddled by the whole concept that a Christian could continue in sin. Now, listen, we're not talking perfection here. I'm talking you get saved and you never sin again. That's not what Paul's talking about. There's plenty of evidence in the Bible that this is something that's being changed. But the idea that you're just going to continue, I'm just going to continue to practice sin. You know, hey, you, you pull the you pull the fences down, man. You told me I could do whatever I want. Guess what I want to do? I want to sin nonstop until Jesus comes back. Paul's scratching his head. He says, I, I don't get that. Why does he say he doesn't get that? He said, because something happened to you. Something incredible happened to you. That doesn't allow that to continue that way. This is where I put in your outline, motivation, it's a matter of life and death. There's a death that took place in you. The death you experienced was in some strange, mysterious way. God included you in the death that Jesus Christ went through. Not just on paper, not just some paper technicality, but in a mysterious way, God included us in that death so that when Jesus died the death to sin, I died the death to sin with him. So that sin would no longer reign over me. It would no longer have its power and control over me. Before, when I did what I wanted to do, I was under the power of sin. When I lived on this side of not knowing Christ, the power of sin had control of me. Every time I did what I wanted to do, I did what sin wanted me to do. That's what I really did. But when I died with Christ, that power was broken. So that power isn't in me that way anymore. In the way these thought here from Douglas Moody says, the idea of a decisive separation from sin. Paul is t- talking not about the penalty, but about the power of sin. It is better then to view the separation as a separation from the rule or realm of sin. Sin being personified as a power that rules over the, the person outside of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson says, the crucifixion of the old man And the destruction of the body of sin make an enormous difference to our lives. We are no longer what we once were. We are no longer related to sin the way we once were. Before Christ, there was this life animation inside of us. There was this stony heart way of living apart from God. And so, therefore, it made sense that when you say, well, what is it that you'd want to do? We wanted to do something sinful. But when we come to Christ, there's a death that takes place to that element of us. So that Paul says, I don't understand it. You want to keep doing that? I don't don't get that. Because it's a death that's taking place. There's been a death that changes the way sin operates in our lives. Now, listen, that is true whether you're hearing it for the first time today whether you've forgotten about it, whether you never knew it, that is true. That is true. Well, I don't feel like it's true. That is true. You don't know my life. That is true. See, this is truth. This happened before you ever drew breath. God decided it would be that way. So whether you feel indifferently about it or don't agree with it or don't understand, it doesn't change it at all. It really is the truth. So there's been a death that should motivate my decisions, but then there also there's been a life as well. Look in your outline there. First John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's a pretty strong statement. It needs to be a strong statement. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him. God is inside of him now. The presence of God is there. Ezekiel spoke of that. A new spirit born again by the Spirit of God. So if that's now present in me, it doesn't make sense. That sin would continue to operate in my life just like it did when there was no presence of God in me. That just doesn't make any sense. God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Again, this is not as though I got saved and I've never sinned again. That's not what this verse is about. Because the Bible clearly teaches, and we'll get back to that maybe later, clearly teaches on temptations and battles in this arena. I'm talking about when when I turn my desires loose, where do they want to go? Well, oh, they want to run away from God forever. Oh, really? Really? On the inside, you've been born again by the Spirit of God. God is writing on your heart. God is at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And when you actually let your desires loose, they run away from God? Do you understand? That doesn't make any sense. That should puzzle you greatly. Now, listen, what maybe you've never done is you've never taken your desires. Off the leash and trusted that God actually would work in them. And you actually would begin to live this Christian life out of a heart filled with wanting to rather than out of walls restraining you. See, if you buy into the wall mentality and you're trying to protect your life, you're going to actually forfeit this mentality. You're going to forfeit the heart towards one thing that's passionate that God has given you to be toward him that causes you to now want to walk in his way if you live with your face towards the wall you might say well technically I'm still a Christian yeah but you're a pathetically unhappy one because every day of your life you want something different than what it is that looks to be Christian right this is a miserable existence and then you hate those stinking Christians who get around you and make you feel guilty because I want something on the other side of the wall you know, it's like this is what makes the body of Christ weird. Was, you know, somebody gets around you and they have different convictions than you and you feel like, oh, their wall's in a different spot than my wall. They're already on the other side of my wall. Let you know? we judge each other. Listen, you forfeit the dynamic where God conquers the heart. God was never into just wanting some external obedience from us. He wanted our hearts and he wanted to win them. And he wanted to be object of our great joy. If you go back and read some of the most severe language in the, New, in the Old Testament is in the uh, latter part of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, where there's all these curses from God. You know one of the curses from God is because you did not serve me with joy and gladness in your heart. Therefore, you will serve these other nations. It wasn't just that you didn't serve me but it's that you didn't do it with joy and gladness in your heart. Listen, everybody who's here, whose Christianity has turned into this miserable set of rules that I don't even want to do it anymore, but I know I have to. Well, on your way out, ask for a refund. I mean, you've got a bad deal. I don't know, maybe i got some other ones in the bookstore, but you've got a bad deal here going on in your life. Verse 10 of 1 John 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. No, No desire to do these right things is inside of you. John Piper says the term born again has come to mean for many people merely that something or someone got a new lease on life. So a quick survey of the Internet shows that Cisco Systems, the communications company, has been born again. The Green Movement has been born again, and so on. So it's not surprising that we have to be careful when we read that 45% of Americans say they have been religiously born again. It is of enormous consequence that we know what being born again really means. When John writes... If you're born of the Spirit of God, well, he, he thinks so highly of that that it's, it, it's incongruent for him to think that you would continue to practice sin and be born again. He can't put those two things together in his mind because he thinks so highly of God coming on the scene and being in a human being that it would so radically change what we desire and what we're after. Now, here's my answer to motivation. Why, why not sin? Because of death of old and of infusion of new equals a different person. The death of the old, when you came to Christ and you died in Him, the death of the old plus the infusion of the new, the Spirit of God and a new Spirit in you, equals a different person. You are a different person than who you were. Before you knew Christ. Can I say that again? You are a different person since you have been born again than you were before. That's why sin is going to operate differently in your life. Now I want you to consider this verse, and we're going to close. Maybe offer some prayer for some folks that are here today. Look, look at the language here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And consider whether or not you find yourself in this list. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Is the grammar wrong there? Did Paul mean to say, and such are some of you? No, he meant to draw a line and to say, that used to be true of some of you. It's not anymore. What made it different, before you read the rest of it, what made it different? Was it because you began to do those things less frequently. You began to control and restrain that. You know, if you do, uh, if you get drunk four out of seven days in a week, you're an alcoholic. But if you cut it down to two out of seven days in a week, you're not anymore. So such were some of you. Is that what this is talking about? That's not what this is talking about. In verse 11, such were some of you, but but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's Ezekiel chapter 36. What made you different? It it wasn't what you began to practice that made you different. It was what God did that made you different. Years ago, this was not nearly as hard as it is today to hear it. Because today... And I'm going to say this as kindly and carefully as I can. But today, we, you know, our world has looked at human behavior and decided that we know what makes up man. So we've figured everything out. We've got labels for everything, and this is now who you are. So you know, if, if you've got a drunk problem and you have a certain pattern and it meets a certain pattern, you're now an alcoholic. It'd be more helpful if we just used the Bible's terms. The Bible uses the term drunkard. See, if you're a drunkard, the Bible has the answer. But if you're an alcoholic, it, it, you know, Wow. The Bible doesn't say anything about alcoholism, so you're kind of on your own. What well, do you think? This is a new breed just showing up. Nobody looked like alcoholics back when the Bible was being written, for goodness sake. Of course they did. They just called them drunkards. So if you were a drunkard or you're an alcoholic, you, you get to go to a meeting. And I'm not trying to be offensive here, but I am trying to get you to think. You get to go to a meeting and introduce yourself as, Hi, I'm Keith Collins, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, Really? And try and convince that group that you'll one day not be that. And you get to be told you're in denial, that'll never be true, et cetera, et cetera. See, thrust onto the scene. That that thinking came onto our scene in the last century has birthed with it the idea, because look at this list, and there's all kinds of human behaviors here. And so now it's not just a human behavior, it's who you are, right? You ever get involved in homosexuality, you are homosexual. So if, you, if that is who you are now, well, then it makes sense that you, you're just going to have to live with that your whole life. See, do you realize the Bible says, and such were some of you, and it includes drunkards in that list. Listen, if you're here today and you've been laboring under the idea that, man, I've been, I've been having a drinking problem for 25 years in my life, and you are probably convinced you are an alcoholic, that, that's what you are. Well, you have to come to grips with this verse, because if you're a Christian... There was a death that took place where your alcoholic heart that was stony to God was taken out and a new flesh heart was installed. And then the Holy Spirit comes and animates that heart to give you new desires to live your life in a new way. You are not the same person you used to be. Now, whether modern psychology has taken into account what God does, because it does not. But God said that's what he did. He did that to you. So today, I'm a different person. Why can I be different in that category? Because I am a different person. There's been a depth and a separation from that reigning sin in my life. And there's been power that's come by the Holy Spirit to enable me. Listen, it's almost as though, this is why the fruit of the Spirit needs to almost be preached on over and over and over again. It's a cute little list that we learn like the the armor of God and we learn it when we're in Sunday school and then we forget about its implications later on. Man, I've been having anger problems. Man, I mean, I've just been a hothead my whole life. My father was a hothead. My grandfather was this, And that's just who I am. Really? Well, some of you were those things. But you were washed. When you got saved, you got washed. You got a new life. You're not that person anymore. Oh, but you know, man, I want to have a drink, man. And that may not affect you that way, but it affects me that way. Well, that may be true. the person who's tempted to homosexuality. Well, listen, maybe you're not. But I am. That's that's my temptation. Okay, well, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which can only be done by the Spirit on this side of the line. Infused in us is this new life, the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And we get down the list and it is what? Self-control. So that even if I had this impulse to punch your lights out. Right? I mean, you got to understand. Just, I was raised in a home and we just beat the tar out of everybody, man. That's just the way it is. That's who I am. Okay, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say, well, all of you who were raised a certain way, you get to be exempt from ever experiencing the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. You get to be out of control instead. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, the idea that homosexuality should be acting on. Listen, I'll say this to you because you're going to counter this over and over and over again. It makes no more sense in light of the Scripture for a homosexual to have license to pursue his lifestyle than it does for a fornicator to, produce, to, to pursue his. And I don't know what the percentages are of those who are, are giving themselves a homosexuality, but but the super vast majority, ninety plus percent of people, are heterosexual, and and they would breed like rabbits if there wasn't any form of restraint in their life. Right? They'd go around from person to person to person to person. Right? There'd be promiscuity all over the place. You know, so. What doesn't give that person the right to say, hey, man, it's just the way I am. I I just just like girls. What do you want me to tell you? I just like girls. I like them a lot. You know, so we just get together. We hook up a lot. It's just who I am, okay? And what, what does the Bible tell that person? Well, I'm just glad everybody's not that way. There's only about 50 people here this morning who are that way. And, you know, for them, that's okay. That's just the way they are. No, it's not Okay. Because if you've received a new life and the Spirit of God is in you animating a new life and the fruit of self-control is being manifested in you, you don't have to let sin reign in your life ever again. So you don't have to act on a homosexual impulse. You don't have to have another drink. You don't have to do any of that because the reign of sin is over. Now, quite honestly, I'm just, I'm I'm seeking to inform us today because quite honestly, I know this is like a little bitty voice, a little bitty voice of truth amidst a noisy world of falsehood. Every day you live, right now, some of you guys are reeling over the idea that, what do you mean I'm not an alcoholic? I mean, you never got past that point. I said that a few moments ago and you never emerged again because you've been to so many meetings where that was indoctrinated to you. Listen, I'm not asking you to believe me, and I know these are sensitive issues, but the Bible talks about them. The Bible speaks to them. The reason why Christianity is such a radical, amazing thing is because God has done something radically amazing. You don't just attend a meeting, same old corrupt individual, but with a new set of rules. Hey, nothing happened, no death and no new spirit. I'm just a guy who joined a new club. Now you give me my rules and I'll try my best to keep them. Well, if that's what Christianity is, well, then you are still an alcoholic. And you're an alcoholic trying to not be one. Wow, that ain't going to work. But what if you died to what you once were? What if God performed heart surgery and took out of you the heart of an alcoholic and put in you a heart of flesh that he could write on it? New desires to where you could turn your back on the edges of the world and find your delight in God. You're wired for that now and absolutely be enamored with him and want him more than you want anything else, including the pleasure of sex, food, perversion, drugs. You're wired now that those things will never satisfy you, but he will. You're a different person now. Listen, this is the best news you could ever hear in your life. Ain't no other remedy for sin out there. There's no other way to be set free from these things. All by the grace of God. You didn't earn any of it. Matt, let's close and pray for some folks before we dismiss. Three realities that I've closed your outline with. One, sin abounds in our lives. And we are one of these things, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves. We're somewhere in there because sin abounds in the life of a human being. Reality number two, grace abounds more and brings about death to the old and the removal of the heart of stone. That's reality. That's reality. Reality number three, we don't just get a new start. We get a new spirit to enable a different life. What happens in the new birth, John Piper says? What happens in the new birth is not getting new religion, but getting new life. What happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. What happens in the new birth is not the improvement of your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature. A nature that is really you and is forgiven and cleansed. And a nature that is really new and is being formed by the indwelling spirit of God. Let's stand up together. Lord, I know that apart from your grace, the presence and work of your Holy Spirit, these truths would be but a whisper in a hurricane. Because our experience and our lives and our resume of failure and struggle would outshout them. But Lord, when you speak, And your spirit gives us revelation. Then you become the hurricane and everything else gets drowned out. So God, I know right now in this room, there are some folks who are realizing. Like a light just came on in their life. They're realizing they don't have to be that way anymore. They're realizing. No matter what their past no matter how long it's been going on, God does something that trumps those things. God does something greater that rescues us from our particular past and our long history in it. God, I thank you that you are making that real this morning in hearts that are here. And your word is alive a source of joy, Lord, for there's finally an opportunity to be free. It's finally a day where a new life can come. I want to speak to you just for a moment. If just with your eyes shut in and you just sensing and receiving from God. If you're here this morning and the terminology of being born again the experience of god forgiving you your sins and cleansing you from all of your sin and then coming into your heart to live on the inside of you a new life if you cannot find a day in your past where that occurred for you then it's more likely that it's truly never occurred But what great news, God says, I'd like for it to occur. I'd like for it to occur this morning. And so you're here not by accident. You're here by God's design. God wanted you here this morning. God wanted you to have the opportunity to hear him tell you, I want to come into your life. I want to cleanse you of your sins. No matter how long they've been going on, no matter how terrible they've been, I want to forgive them and wash them away. And I want to come in your life. I'm going to take out the old and I'm going to put in a new heart. I'm going to give you new reasons to live. New motivations in your heart. If you're here this morning and that's never happened for you, but you want it to happen. It is what you want. Well, then tell God right now you want it. God, I want that. God, forgive me, God. God. Forgive me of the sins that you know of, that have been in my life. God forgive me of them. God cleanse me of them, wash my life from them, from the stain and from the effects, from the control that they've had in my life. And God remove those old motivations that are in me, to not live for you, but to live for me and to live for sin and to live controlled by sin God. Bring that to death, Lord. And God, I pray right now, I ask for you to come into my life. I ask you, however you do that, Lord, I don't even fully understand. But I ask you to come into my life. Come give me a new heart. Come work on the inside of me. Lord, I want to begin to sense and know your presence in me, your life in me, living through me. God, today... February 15th, 2009 where today is a new day for me. I will never be the same, Lord. Thank you. God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for your mercy that I don't have to earn it today because I couldn't. Thank you for giving it to me as a gift. But help me to grow now. I want to enjoy it more and more every day of my life. Or for some that are here, there are Christians that are here who have lived under the control of sin. Under the control of sin. Lord, and they didn't know that they could truly expect freedom like what's being described here in your word. That the reign of sin has been broken. It's no longer free to impose itself upon us in a controlling way. There's a new power in my life as a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit is in me to will and do differently than my old ways. God, there are some here today who have bought into a label. Or they believe that they're an alcoholic. More than they believe they're a new creation in that area. God, they believe that, that there's sinful immorality in their hearts. That goes back for years and years and years, and they believe more in that than they do in the freedom that is in Christ by the Spirit. God, there's some here who have given into homosexuality. They believe more in that, and the label has stuck on them, and they don't believe they can be free. God, they believe more in that than they do in your Spirit indwelling them, making them a new person. God, I thank you that this is not a room full of idolaters and thieves and greedy individuals. God, you've done something to change that about us. So Lord, would you now teach us more and more, teach us what it is to walk in newness of life. God, what an amazing thing you've done. Lord, just glimpsing at it, and I know I don't understand much about it. But this death that you have included me in and this life you have given to me, Now, Lord, I want to walk in it. I want to experience it. I want to be motivated by this death and this life that is in me. That, Lord, I might find myself freely doing what I really want to do.
1: Survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory. Attempt on all my pride forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ. By God, all the vain things that charm me, sacrifice them to His blood. The wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross Oh, the wonderful cross Bids me come and die And find that I may truly live Oh, the wonderful cross Oh, the wonderful cross, all who gather here, by grace draw near and bless your name. See from his head, see from his head, his hands, his feet, So. Sorrow me or thorns compose so rich a crown. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace draw near and Bless your name. Were the whole realm, were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too. We were made for you, God. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. me come and die and find that I may be true. gather, all who gather, we by grace draw near and bless your